All right, well, we're in Exodus, Exodus 1, and uh, who, who wants to read uh, the entire chapter? Well, let's, let's do, uh, actually, let's break it up. Who wants to read verses 1 through 11, and then who wants to finish it up, 12 through 22? All right, and then who wants to do 12 through 22? All right, thank you. Exodus 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household. Reuben, Stephen, Levi, Judah, Ezekiel, Zebulun, Benjamin, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the lawns of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us be wise Israel, and for out they will multiply, and in the event of war, war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage city, Python and Ramesses. Twelve? Yep. Uh, no, no, uh, I think Donna, uh, you're done. Twelve, right? But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. So the Egyptians brutally compelled the sons of Israel to slave labor, and they made their lives bitter with hard slave labor in mortar and bricks, and in all kinds of slave labor in the field, all their slave labor which they brutally compelled them to do. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other was named Puah. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, and let the boys live? Then the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can come to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Now it happened that because the midwives feared God, he made households for them. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Great, thank you. By way of review, you guys remember the the context of um, when and where, what was the setting uh, for when uh, this, these first five books of Moses was read to the Israelites? When and where is this happening? They're hearing it being read to them, Genesis to De Deuteronomy for the first time. When and where is this happening? Did it happen in Mount so they received the law on Mount Sinai, but the first five books of Moses, um, 
when do the Israelites hear this read from beginning to end for the first time? When and where? Uh, no, that's 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 way way in the distant future. Yeah, you guys remember? So there, uh, it's right after the forty years of wilderness wandering, and they're about to enter the promised land, and. Uh, this, these first five books of Moses are read to them for the first time, right? And the reason for that uh, is that before they enter into, into the promised land, they need to know who their God is clearly. They need to know the, uh, what God, their role in God's plan, that the plan that was first uh, given to them in Genesis 3.15, right? They, they're, they're going in as a, as a nation, and so they need to know, in Genesis, what, what do they need to know from Genesis? They need to know their national values. And we saw in Genesis, their first national value was to, 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 that they needed to believe God, to have faith. And that, that value was communicated to them through uh, the life and times of Abraham. And you remember chapter 12 to 22, we see Abraham's faith grow and go up and down. And, and Abraham's faith reaches its kind of maturation in Genesis 22, when he's called, when he when God tells him to sacrifice his son, and he does so, um, and the next value that God was to teach him that was that God was present with them, right? That God fights for them, and we see that demonstrated in Jacob's life. God was with him, and then the last value they needed to learn from Genesis was that that they needed to have a faith in a God who was able to turn evil into good, and we see that through the life of Joseph. So as we move from Genesis to Exodus, now. These national values of Israel, they need to go online. They need to be made public. They, these values need to be made prominent. And, and while doing so, God is going to continue to reveal in greater depth and detail the kind of God he is and what his plan for the world is. So in the book of Exodus, uh, Israel's values, in Israel's national values are now in, introduced to the world through her conflict with Egypt. For example, Chick-fil-A can have its company values, right? Um, what's some of Chick-fil-A's company values? <laughs> yeah, that's a huge one. Not open on Sundays. Now, in order for everybody else to know Chick-fil-A's that value, they have to open stores. They have to open stores. If they don't open stores, nobody knows about their value that they don't work on Sunday. But because, so, so, so th this is what God is doing. He's setting up a store so that everybody knows. This is what God's people are like. And if there's one word that Exodus kind of just focuses on and explains that, that captures all of these values in a nutshell, the word is redemption. It's redemption. Um, our God is a, is a God of redemption. Um, he's, uh, that's what he's doing in the world. He's redeeming people from slavery. He's setting the captives free. He's bringing them to a better land. And so um, redemption captures all of Israel's values in a nutshell. How so? Because in order for God to redeem you, what do you have to do? You have to trust him. You have to have faith. Um, in order for God to redeem you, doesn't he have to be present with you? Yeah. 
He has to be fighting for you in order to be in order for redemption to be carried out. Does does God fight for Israel in in in, in, the, in the Exodus? Oh, sure, he does. He does a lot of fighting, and you have to have a God who turns evil into good, right? And redemption captures all of the, all of that. What is Exodus about? Exodus is about God's name. Uh, what's his name? What does his name mean? How does he display his character through his name? We'll see in this book how the ten plagues reveal the redemption, redemptive nature of God's name. Um, in the wilderness, we're going to learn, um, as God preserves Israel in the wilderness, as they, as they flee from Egypt, you will, we'll, we'll learn the necessity of God's word. What does God's word do for Israel in the wilderness? It reveals God's redemptive character. Um, Israel will learn more national values in this book of in the book of Exodus, and one of the, those values will be that Israel is the people of the law. When Israel goes to Mount Sinai, uh, God makes explicit the purpose of Israel through the law. He reveals His gracious name through a law. Um, Israel, after witnessing and being the beneficiary of God's power in the plagues, and 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 being the beneficiary of Exodus of of being freed from Pharaoh and, and, and his army. Uh, now Israel must learn how to live for God in light of God's redemptive power. Well, God says when he gives the law to, to Israel, God explicitly says, and because I've redeemed you, this is how you must live in light of that redemption. And how does the book of Exodus end? How does it end? Rebellion, a golden cow. But what is, does God destroy them? No, God forgives his people. So redemption, it involves the power to redeem, but redemption also requires grace. Grace. Redemption requires God's grace for rebellious sinners because grace is is, is what is going to keep redemption going and going and going until the end. God redeems us from sin, doesn't he? Doesn't he, right? He redeems you, he frees you from sin. And then what does he do after he redeems you from sin? He keeps forgiving us, right? He keeps showing us grace. This redemption thing isn't going to make it to the end unless God shows us grace. Exodus uh, teaches us that. Exodus is not just a story for Israel. Exodus is our story. It's your story. It's my story. We're a people who've been redeemed. Um, This theme of redemption uh, focused on, expounded upon, declared in this book, is the cornerstone of how redemption is going to play out throughout Scripture until Revelation. And we're going to learn how the Ten Commandments reveal God's character, what He desires from us. We're going to learn in this book about God's name. Um, we're going to learn about grace. Uh, grace comes from, we see grace in a, in a powerful way in the book of Exodus. And so if we if we really get this book, we're going to see um, real, just the rest of the this theme of, of redemption, we're going to see a lot more clearly than we would have having not studied Exodus. We're going to see that theme really clearly throughout the rest of Scripture. Um, I, have a, I have a really thick book in this, by De- Denny, uh, by, uh, who is it? Who is it? By uh, uh, Jim Hamilton. Jim Hamilton, uh, professor of Southern Baptist, Southern, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he argues... That the the, 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 the the core theme of Scripture, the thesis of Scripture, is God's salvation through judgment. When God saves, he always saves through judgment. That is the MO of God with respect to our salvation. Um, in salvation, from beginning to end, throughout, 
when God saves, grace is displayed and justice is displayed, right? In Revelation, what, what is going on in Revelation? He's saving his people while he's also judging the world. When God saved you, who did he judge? Jesus Christ, right? Um, and, but but, where, but, but where, where, do, where do we first see that, that, that theme? Salvation uh, through judgment. In Exodus, he saves his people while judging his enemies, right? You see that in Genesis 3.15. God uh, saves us, right? The, the, the seed of the woman uh, destroys evil, crushes evil, right? Saves us. And who gets judged? The serpent, right? So that theme uh, first presents itself in the book of Exodus. Now I want to talk about the date of Exodus. This is important. Because in uh, the church world, in the scholarly world, in the, in the world of academics, um, there, there are two big dates to choose from. Both are orthodox, um, but one, one date is more orthodox. And so you want to kind of want to remember this. This is important. There is the late date, the late. Uh, I'm sorry. There is the um, the, the late date. Uh, the uh, 1445 BC, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let me say. There, there's the early date, the early, the earliest date. Um, I'm getting confused. 1445 BC. That's the early date, and then there is the later date, the date that. That, that's closer to us, 1267 B.C., right? So you have an early date for Exodus, 1445 B.C. You have a later date, 1267 B.C., right? And we hold, or I hold, and I hope you hold, to the early date of Exodus, 1445 B.C., or around that time, 1440 B.C. Let me give you the argument first for the, for the, for the, uh, for the late date, the late date, 1267 B.C., um, and, and there's some good reasons for it, okay? So that's why it's, it's not as, like, real clear-cut as it possibly could be. Could be. Um, verse 11, you see one of the storage cities is named Ramses, right? And it just happens that around 1200 uh, B.C., the pharaoh was Ramses II. So, oh, wait, well, you, find a, you find a Ramses, you, you find a storage city right there, boom. That's all good. That's a good reason. Now, if you date, date the book late, also the timeline there was a there was a people called the 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 Hyksos people. The Hyksos people they were Semites, and and the Jews were Semites, so they were kind of related. They're kind of cousins. And if you date the book late, these Hyksos people they temporarily had control over Egypt during the time of Joseph. So that would really explain Joseph's rise to power, his favorability. You might, because some some people might think, well, how did, why would the Egyptians allow this this Hebrew who they kind of hated, look down upon? Why would they allow him to rise to power? Well, the Hyksos people explain that because they're they were Semitic. So it explain it also explains some details in chapter one and two. There's some archaeology found that works better with the late date. And finally, uh, I don't think this is a good reason, but go to 1 Kings, 1 Kings 6.1. 1 Kings 6.1. Now it happened, 1 Kings 6.1 said, Now it happened in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out from the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Kings, 
uh, of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Zeb, which is the second month that he began to build the house of Yahweh. So both, everybody agrees that this happened in 966 B.C. It's a date no one dis- disputes. The late daters, the early daters, all agree that it, this happened, verse chapter 1, I mean chapter 6, verse 1 happened in 966 B.C. Now, um, so, it happened, and then what does it say? Uh, this happened in 966 B.C., and then it says what in verse 1? 480 years after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. So somebody add 966 plus 480 here. What does that come out to? We know it's 966, and it tells us that 966 BC is 480 years after Israel left Egypt. So what's that? Yeah, yeah. So this is an early date. Early date, right? Not late date, but the late daters say, you know what? This is num- this number is symbolic. It's symbolic because twelve generations times forty, four hundred eighty, right? Twelve tribes of Israel, uh, forty, what, 40, 40 years in the wilderness, four hundred eighty, symbolic, okay? Um, so that's probably not a, a, a real, the best uh, argument for the late date. So that's the argument. There's some some strong ones, some weak ones. Now let's let, let's let's look at the early date argument. Early date argument. The strongest one is what? Chapter six, verse one. <laughs> right? It says right there. Yeah. Um, a really clear. You know the symbol. I hate, I hate when people throw in symbolism when there's really no evidence for symbolism in the text. <laughs> it's such a cheesy way of just getting out of something so obvious. Um, so it, 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 you know the text says it. Now, if the early date is true, um, that would make. Uh, Ramses, this, uh, no, no, I'm sorry. If the late date, if the late date is right, right? Because you have, that makes Ramses, um, the Pharaoh in Exodus 1, right? Right? Uh, Ramses the second is the Pharaoh in Exodus 1, and then he builds a storage city in verse 11 named Ramses, right? Named after himself. But there's a problem because go to Exodus 2.23. What does it say? During that long period, the king of Egypt died. Right, he died. And so the late date people say that, because uh, we know the dates of Ramses. See, the, the, Ramses is alive when uh, Moses runs away. So if, 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 if see, 1267, Ramses II is alive, right? The late date, Ram, uh, 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 Ramses is, is alive in 1267 BC, if the Exodus happened that year, Ramses is alive. So that means he can't be alive in Exodus 1, right? He can't be alive in both periods. Does that make sense? And so um, you have to kind of ignore verse 23. You just, I don't know how to get around it. But it doesn't doesn't make sense. The time doesn't fit. Um, if the early date is true, we have a likely candidate for the Egyptian pr- princess who rescued baby Moses floating down the river, and that candidate is Hatshepsut, 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 Queen Hatshepsut. Um, if you know anything about Queen Hatshepsut, her her personality really fits the personality of the queen here. 
Um, and I'll tell you uh, the reason why later. She was a very independent, a headstrong woman. Uh, you can totally see ha Queen Hatshepsut, uh, like not listening to her father's decree. Okay. Um, we also have a dream stele of, uh, found at the Sphinx, so kind of a stone inscription, and it's a dream stele of Thutmose the Fourth, and in that stele, Thutmose the Fourth says says in that stele, he, he says that the Sphinx told him that he was going to be a king, right? Now, why is that strange? Like, why do you need, well, because, uh, why do you need the Sphinx to tell you, and why do you need to tell the people that the Sphinx told you you would be king when it's just kind of assumed you're the heir? Yeah. Like, why do you need a dream to say this? This is propaganda, right? This is propaganda. Why do you need this propaganda? You know, <coughs> dictators, you know, Kim Jong-il, he says, I got born in a mountain and all this thing happened, right? And therefore, I'm this god. Um, why is Thutmose the fourth? Why, why would he need a dream? Why would he need this propagandist to say this? Because Thutmose the fourth is the son of the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Okay? And that means what? What is he then? If he's the son of the Pharaoh of the Exodus... He's what, in terms of, uh, of birth order? He's not the firstborn. He's not the firstborn. Because the firstborn, what? He died. And so um, he needs legitimacy, right? He, he, he needs to kind of prove that this is not an accident. This is not like, oh, okay, we got the secondborn. Um, and, and by the way, this is the only time in Egyptian history where the secondborn son becomes the pharaoh. We also have uh, some, uh, a stele called the Merneptah stele. Merneptah was a king in Egypt. And in 1200, he talks about conquering the people of Israel. Now, that doesn't make sense because if Israel left Egypt in 1200, 1200 BC, how can they also be settled there in Israel when, when Egypt goes and conquers them, right? Doesn't, so the time. So um, that's, these are all the, the reasons, the main reasons for why we hold to a 1440 B.C. around that time uh, argument. Uh, why is this important? Because Exodus is real. It's historical. Uh, the history is wrapped up in our theology, right? It goes hand in hand. If Jesus really didn't die for our sins, then our sins aren't forgiven. If that's not historical, then the theology of forgiveness is not real. So if there's no history, there's no theology. Sc scripture is certainly more than history. Um, Jesus' death in history did something theologically too. But scripture certainly isn't less than its history. Paul says if Jesus didn't really rise bodily from the dead historically, then we of all people need to be pitied because there's then, then there is no real theology of the resurrection. So theology and history going hand in hand. Um, so the history matters here. Let me give you a, let's move to the, the timeline of the Exodus. Let me give you a timeline. This is fascinating. Um, so Joseph goes down to Egypt in the 12th dynasty. 12th Egyptian dynasty. The 12th dynasty is very rich. They're very powerful. And that makes sense, right? In, in Genesis, uh, is Egypt really rich during the famine? Yes, they're very rich. Um, by the way, the 12th dynasty is not Hyksos. It's not Hyksos. So Joseph's rise to power was because of God's divine grace. And we know, why is it, why do we know from the text, why do we know for sure Joseph's rise to power isn't because of Hyksos rule. Why do we know that for sure? Because what happened when he, had, when he met Pharaoh? What did he need to do? He needed to do 
needed to interpret the dream. Okay. But he needed to do something else. So then, he needed to shave. He needed to shave his body. Because the Egyptians, they, they weren't hairy people. And um, the Jews were. Semitic people were hairy, right? Mm -hmm. The Hyksos were hairy people. So if the Hyksos were in rule, it would have, it, um, Joseph wouldn't have need to, needed to have shaved. Or he wouldn't have needed to have shaved. Mm -hmm. So it shows you that um, um, the, the people in power during Joseph's, Joseph's rise to power were actual Egyptians. Um, in the 18th dynasty, um, the Hyksos are kicked out. Um, oh, before that, 13th, the 13th dynasty to the 7th dynasty, the Hyksos do take over. And that would mean Israel would have done even better under the Semitic people's rule, right? Because they're very similar. In the 18th dynasty, they're kicked out. Israel now becomes enemy number one to the Egyptians because of their similarity, maybe even partnership with the Hyksos. Um, the Exodus story takes place in the Egyptian 18th dynasty. And the 18th dynasty is the world's first superpower. In the history of civilization, the 18th dynasty is the world's first superpower. Now, what's interesting is, right after the 18th dynasty, history records an unexplained economic disaster in Egypt. What would best explain that disaster? They don't have the manpower anymore. <laughs> the exodus. Yeah. Your workforce all leaves the country. That's going to affect your economy, right? Mm -hmm. Ten plagues is going to hurt your economy, right? All the firstborn dying, it's going to hurt you. Your entire army being wiped out, that's going to hurt you, okay? So the Egyptians don't explain that. They don't want to advertise that. Like many secular superpowers, especially in ancient times, the Bible does. Now, here are the pharaohs of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Um, Thutmose I, this is the pharaoh of chapter 1. This is the pharaoh of chapter 1. Thutmose I, he's the one who doesn't know Joseph. He wants to kill the babies. This king is Moses' grandfather. Um, he reminds us of Herod the Great, who when Jesus was, Jesus is the second Moses, right? And remember Herod the Great, he wanted to kill the babies too. So you see that, 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 that theme of that Exodus theme in, in, in the Gospels. Um, Thutmose I has a son named Thutmose II. Um, Thutmose II is the half-brother to Hatshepsut. Uh, Hatch, and now, they get married, guess what? Thutmose II dies mysteriously. Hmm, <laughs> I wonder why. Hatshepsut becomes queen. Hatshepsut becomes queen. She's that type of lady, Okay. She's, she's type, the type of lady that, that does what she does in chapter 2. Now, Thutmose III is Moses' half-brother. In chapter 2, when Moses kills the Egyptian, Hatshepsut is on her deathbed. She's dying. So she, she, she doesn't have the power to protect Moses. And so Thutmose III is Moses' chief rival. And so that explains, when he kills the Egyptian, he's like, okay, I'm in trouble. My... Uh, Half-brother, step-half-brother, is going to kill me. Now, the son of Thutmose III is Amenhotep II. He's the pharaoh of the Exodus. And so when Moses returns to Egypt, Moses is Amenhotep's step-uncle. And he's Hatshepsut's firstborn. Right? 
There's a, now there's a threat to his power, right? Moses, the firstborn of Hatshepsut, comes back. Um, he's the step-uncle of Amenhotep. And so when Moses says, Pharaoh, let my people go, Amenhotep is going to be like, oh, I'm not going to listen to you. Right? Because if he does that, what, what, is it, what is it a sign of? A sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. A sign of weakness. So there's a lot of pressure on his, for, on his part not to listen to his step-uncle, right? That would be a sign, of, that would be a threat to his authority. So, um, this is really fascinating. And so you can, this weekend, if you're curious, you can type in Thutmose I, Hatshepsut, Thutmose III, and, and read about them, and read about their, their personalities and their reigns. And, and, and just to show, there are alternate dates, so you're going to see some dates, and it might, there are dates that match up with the chronology I showed you. Showed you. So, Amenhotep, there's like two dates, um, and there is a, a alternate date that fits the, this timeline, and it, and and, it, and he was where he reigns in 14, uh, 14, 1445. So just to go to, just to give you a heads up on that. Okay, let's go to the text. Let's go to the text. Uh, I got three points for you: one through six, verses one through six. Um, Israel's presence in Egypt. Israel's presence. In Egypt, uh, the first six ber- verses of Exodus introduces the book for us, and it does two things. These, for, these first six verses does two things. It it points backward to the patriarch, uh, to the patriarchs and the story of Genesis, and it points forward to the Exodus story. Um, the first six verses uh, presuppose that you you're familiar with Genesis. Why do you know that? How, how, how is this obvious? How is this obvious? Because Genesis ends with Well, let's say you didn't, you never read Genesis, and you only had the first six verses of Exodus. How do you know that Moses is presuming you've read Genesis just based on these uh, these first six verses? How, how do you know he's presupposing you know this? You see a family tree? Yeah, you, you see a family tree, and you're like, who are these people? <laughs> right? Who are these people? Who's Jacob? Who's Reuben? Who's Simeon? Why did they come to Egypt? Um, why is, verse 5, why is Joseph already in Egypt? Right? It, it makes no sense. Right? Nobody begins a story from the beginning with this. Because he doesn't explain anything. So Moses assumes you've read Genesis. And this is part two of the story. Right? Go ahead. Does it help you to place them chronologically? Chronologically, but it also proves another important thing that it's a single author. It's one author. Yeah. Yeah. Because liberals like to say, oh, no, Genesis is written by him, and Exodus is written by him, and him, and all these different people. Um, it makes sense that the author of Exodus is the author of Genesis, mm-hmm. right? So it proves single authorship, which proves the credibility of Scripture. Um, so um, we go to verse 1, and it begins with, these are the names of the sons of Israel. There we see that we saw that phrase before in Genesis 46, verse 8. Again, Moses is assuming you've read Genesis, you understand. Now go to Genesis 46, verse 8, and I'm going to test your memories here. 
We'll see if your memory is good as my, my five-year-old. Is your memory better than a five-year-old? <laughs> he, has, he has a pretty good memory. Um, look, look at how uh, chapter 46, verse 8 begins. Now these are, the sons of the na- these are the names of the sons of Israel. And then you get in chapter 46, all these names. Reuben and his son, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, Carmi, sons of Simeon, sons of Issachar, for 16 sons of Gad. Names, 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 names. And remember what was the point of these names in Genesis 46? What was the point of all these names? We talked about it. You were here. You, you gave me the answer. I remember. Distinctly. But you ate too many tacos. <laughs> what was the point of this? All these names, all, this, all these kids, all, these, all this family, all these people, all these people. To Abraham, right? I will, I, will ble- I will multiply your seed. It's the numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore, right? In Genesis 46, we get to the end and, and it's showing, Moses is saying, God is fulfilling his promise, guys. And so if that's true in Genesis 46, then what is Moses, Moses what is the point of beginning uh, verse 1 with this phrase, now, are these, now these are the names of the sons of Israel? What's, why, why does he put that here? The same phrase that, that we saw in 46.8. Because Moses is saying, you know that promise God made to Abraham in Genesis? He's going to continue to fill it in Exodus. It doesn't stop. It's, it's going to keep going, guys. It, the, the plan is still being fulfilled. It's still online. It shows that God is going to keep his promise here in Exodus. Uh, by the way, that, that word names is also, in the Hebrew Bible, the title of Exodus. So in the Hebrew Bible, it's not titled Exodus, it's titled Names. Titled Names. And that's an appropriate way to begin, uh, to, to begin verse, uh, the first verse of Exodus, because what name are we going to be introduced to in Exodus, in the book of Exodus? What name are we going to be intro- introduced to? Somebody even more important than Moses. Yeah, Yahweh, Yahweh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And literarily, it's really cool because, remember in Genesis, we see Yahweh over and over again. We see Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Now look in Exodus 1. Do you see, do you see Yahweh? No. You see God, right? Yeah. Chapter 2, God, right? There's no Yahweh. No Yahweh. Until chapter 3. So Moses is purposely not using the name Yahweh to get you ready for chapter 3. So he just holds back. Genesis, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then begins Exodus. I'm not going I'm I'm to mention Yahweh because I don't want to ruin the, you know, the, the, the Shabam, you know, the Ba, wow, Yahweh. And so, go ahead. Was Yahweh mentioned in Genesis? Oh, yes, over and over and over. Yeah, 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 over and over and over. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, where is it? So wherever, well, <laughs> there's, there's Yahweh. Wherever you, wherever you see capital L-O-R-D, in um, your, in Genesis, that's that's the that's the that's where Yahweh is. Um, in my in my uh, um, well, let's go to the, the chapter. Let's see, you know, chapter two. Uh, in chapter two, it's everywhere. Uh, chapter two, verse seven. Then Yahweh God formed man out of dust. Verse eight. Yahweh God. You know, Yahweh God. So my LSB just. Does Yahweh God, Yahweh God? So you see it everywhere yeah. in Genesis. Um, so it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good way to begin. 
Now, let's read verses uh, 1 through 2 to, th- 2 to 4. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishashar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. Uh, all the persons that came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. Uh, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Um, so it begins with 70, but... And 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 that's in, that number is included there because it's, it, Moses is gonna is gonna compare that number to the number that you find at the end of Exodus when they leave Egypt. So they they go to Egypt with seventy, and God is so going to multiply and keep His promise. They're going to leave uh, with a lot more than seventy. Verse six. Here the narrative chronologically kind of just kind of moves forward tells us that this generation of brothers and all those who came with them, and even Joseph, they all die. They all die. And so now we get to point number two in chapter one, Israel's crisis in Egypt, verses 7 through 14. Um, We move from the presence of Israel in Egypt, uh, kind of a reminder, one through through six. And we go to that Israel's presence to Israel's crisis. And we're introduced to a situation, to the situation that leads to the, the brutal oppression of Israel by Egypt. Um, uh, these verses are going to answer the question that you might be thinking, or any hearer might be thinking, how does Israel go from favor in Genesis, in Egypt, to disgrace? How do they go from a protected people with government dis- connections at the highest level to a gang of slaves laboring under severe oppression. And verse 7 gives us the main reason behind this meteoric fall of Israel. That's a, this Verse 7 is a, is a nice verse. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Um, you see five verbs, all meaning pretty much the same thing. Um, you, you usually see two or three. To see five is kind of overkill. And it's emphasizing what? Population explosion. Population explosion for the Israelites. And this language, where did you first hear this language? Where did you first hear some of the language in verse 7? Yeah, go to Genesis 128. So you hear that language, and Genesis 128 says, God blessed them, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, what is verse 7 in Exodus chapter 1? By this connection to Genesis 1, what is Moses telling us? Okay. 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 What else? And then, and then I think as part of that, to back to Genesis, they will they would be dominating the earth. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm losing the thought there. <laughs> you weren't there. Yeah. So you're 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 halfway there. So as they're growing and then they become great. And yeah. They might take over. And yeah. You're, you're like my son. He always says you're halfway there. Halfway there. Halfway there. We asked my uh, we asked my 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 boy Paul. He said. You like mommy's cooking? She's, he said, he, she's halfway there. She's halfway there. <laughs> How's grandma's cooking? Oh, she's halfway there. She's halfway there. Um, daddy's cooking? Oh, because I grill, you know? Oh, he's there. He's there. He's arrived. He's arrived. <laughs> so you're halfway there. Halfway there, brother. 
Okay, what else? What else does it imply that, it, that this language mirrors Genesis one twenty eight? Genesis one twenty eight is the is the is the is creation mandate, right? Yeah. That's the plan of God there. That's God's original plan for the world. They would be fruitful and multiply. They would fill the earth. And after uh, the, the earth is filled, what do you have a world filled with? Presuming there is no fall. You have a world filled with God's glory. Because you have worshipers all over the world filled with praising God's name, worshiping him, fill, filled with God's glory. So, verse 7 says, Moses is saying, this plan to fill the world with God's glory, God is advancing the plan. This, the plan of God's, the creation plan in Genesis will be fulfilled in Exodus. Israel is fulfilling in, in, in microcosm what God intends for the whole of creation. This is a microcosmic fulfillment of God's macrocosmic design for the world. And Israel is God's starting, starting point for realizing the salvation plan for every tribe tongue of the world, right? Every tribe and tongue. Make disciples of all the nations. What is that? That's the creation mandate. Fill the earth, multiply, fill, it, fill the earth with his glory, right? Um, that's happening with Israel now. Verse 7 is a foretaste of a, a new world, a new humanity. And Israel's going to play a big, big role in taking back the world for his glory. But what God and his people consider a, a blessing, others consider a threat, right? What a blessing it is for, for the church to make disciples of all the nations, to go out into the world, to plant churches. Does the world think it's a blessing? No, they're threatened by it. They're threatened by it. You know, countries are like, oh no, no, we're gonna. You can't, you can't proclaim that gospel here. Um, and you, and we see that first in the book of Exodus. So God is pushing His plan forward in verse seven, but then in verse eight, a new character is introduced who will attempt to thwart God's plan. Verse eight: A new king over Egypt arises. This is Thutmose the first, and he doesn't know Joseph. And now this doesn't mean he doesn't know of Joseph's existence or his role or his reputation. Everybody knows Joseph. Everybody knows Joseph in Egypt. Even today in Egypt, you have uh, Bar Yusuf. It's a canal, canal, the waterway of Joseph Canal. Um, everybody, even today, knows Joseph's role in Egypt's history. Uh, to not know Moses and to not know Joseph in verse 8 means that Thutmose I didn't know Joseph in a, in a, in a favorable way. There was no affection for Joseph, no loyalty, no sense of thanks, thankfulness, no sense of approbation at all. And in light of recent, the recent Hyksos occupation of Egypt uh, and that Semite connection, uh, this population growth scares uh, Thutmose. He's threatened by what God is doing. But even more than that, look at verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people, the sons of Israel, are more and mightier than we. What is he kind of what is he, what is he saying? He's saying Israel's beating us. We're losing. We're losing. He recognizes, he recognizes what God is doing. Pharaoh recognizes what God is doing. Now this is what he says in verse 10. Come, let us deal wisely with them. That phrase, come let us, 
Where did you see that before? Jesus. Good. <laughs> Good. Now you got to give me a chapter. Nope. Yes. Go to Genesis 11. Jim, you get a taco. You get a free taco. That's your reward. You get. We can take one home. Go to Genesis 11. And it's very distinct. It's very obvious, Genesis 11. Genesis 11, 3. Um, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks. Verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city. And then... Verse 7, God mockingly repeats what they say. Come, let us go down in there, confuse their language. And so, the king of Egypt says the same thing in verse 10. He says the same thing. And it's interesting, the word, uh, the word for bricks, if you go to Exodus 1, and it says... Uh, in verse 14, mortar and bricks. They made mortar and bricks. It's a very unique word for Hebrew word for bricks. And you know what? You see the same word in Genesis 11, where verse 3, they had brick for stone. Right? Come, let us make bricks. So a clear allusion to Genesis 11. 11. What is the significance of this? Why is Moses phrased Pharaoh's words this way in verse 10? to link up, to link with the Tower of Babel. The answer to that is you have to remember what happened in Genesis 11. Yeah, it's a parallel. Yeah. Right, right. So remember Genesis 11, that was a satanic conspiracy. A satanic conspiracy to keep God from accomplishing the creation mandate, right? Because he says, fill the earth, multiply, and what does the, pe the, the people who were the builders of Babel, what did they say? They say in verse 4, um, let's build ourselves, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, lest, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. We're not going anywhere. We're not listening to God. No, no, no. God says multiply, fill the earth. No, we're staying right here, guys. And so, what is that? So, if we know that that is what happened in Genesis 11, what is Moses telling us about Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1? That, that Pharaoh, too, is part of a satanic ploy to keep God from accomplishing his plan. And look what he says. Lest they multiply, and it be in the event of war, that they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight us against us and go up from the land. No, we're not gonna. We're not gonna let you multiply. We're not gonna let you fill the earth, right? And so, what happens in Exodus isn't some little localized event in history in the Middle East that has nothing to do with you and me. Now, this is a record of a cosmic war, a cosmic battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. It's a spiritual battle where the destiny of the world is at stake. The destiny, our destiny is at stake here. Because this is your story. Pharaoh doesn't want God to fill the earth with his glory. The Egyptians are also what? The descendants of Ham. Go, go to Genesis. Genesis 10. 
Ham was who? Ham was who? The son of Noah that was cursed. He was the son of Noah that was cursed, and that's why we have ham for, for <laughs> Thanksgiving. That's why uh, Justin brings a ham for Thanksgiving to, to, to highlight that curse. No, I'm just kidding. Um, now, the sons of Ham, verse 6, were Cush. Sons of Ham were Cush. Cush are the Egyptians. The sons of Cush were Seba. Look at verse 8. Now, Cush was the father of Nimrod, right? Mm-hmm. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was what? Verse 10, Babel, right? So, <laughs> Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they're related to the organizers of Babel even. Right? They're even, they're even uh, related by blood. Um, go to back to verse 10, Exodus 1. And they, they want to prevent Israel from leaving the land. And doesn't that become an important theme in the book of Exodus? Israel leaving the land, yeah. right? But you saw it here in chapter 1. So uh, chapter 1 is, is, is telling us what's going to happen in the story. Key theme. Um, verse 11. So in order for, to, to keep the, the Israelites from growing... They appoint taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labors. They build for Pharaoh storage cities. These were objects of prestige. It's a very common thing in the ancient Near East. But what what happens in verse 12? The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out. You can't stop God so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. That, 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 the idea behind the word dread is to be at your wit's end. It's like, oh, what am I going to do now? What are we going to do? They can't stop God. You can't stop God. Verse 13 and 14, um, it's an inclusio. It's framed. These two verses are framed by uh, a couple words. What is 13 and 14 framed by? What words do you see at the beginning of verse 13, at the end of verse 14? Ruthlessly. I'm sorry? Ruthlessly. Ruthlessly what? Wait, is that the word? Read the beginning of verse 13 for me. Oh, and worked. And worked them, and worked them ruthlessly. With what? Uh, worked no. them with what? Uh, ruthlessly. Okay, how does, how does verse 14 end? Same way. Okay, yeah, good, good. So yeah, your, your versions capture that. Yeah, so you see how it's literary speaking. Uh, 13 and 14 is about how the Egyptians brutally, brutally compelled the sons of Israel to slave labor. Um, they're not slaves yet, but they're being treated like slaves. And you're going to see that motif uh, throughout Exodus. Will, will God's people, will they serve Pharaoh or, or will they serve Yahweh? Um, that's kind of another theme that's being introduced. Um, so Pharaoh is doing everything to oppose God's plan of filling the earth with his glory. And so by bringing uh, the Jews under his authority, he's usurping the place of God, who alone has authority over Israel. So in Exodus, it's not just a war between Egypt versus Israel or Pharaoh versus Israel. Exodus is the record of a war between Pharaoh and God himself. This is Pharaoh versus God. This is Pharaoh versus God. Um, what, what's 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 uh, kind of Pharaoh's? What's the what's the idea be, with all this this bitter uh, uh, hard labor? What is he trying to do? How, how will this kind of prevent, or how does how does he think it will prevent um, Israel from from 
um, increasing. Fatigue. Fatigue, right? Yeah. Unhappiness. Unhappiness. More accidents, more yeah. death, death. Less time at home should translate into less population growth. Mm-hmm. Still doesn't work. No. Um, Pharaoh's plan is not working. It's not working. So Pharaoh wants to try another plan. Try, try another plan. And we go to the, the last part of our, our time in Exodus. Um, point number three, God gives names to the humble. Verses 15 through 22. Um, again, remember I said the Hebrew title for this book is the word, Hebrew word for names. Remember verse 1 had the word names. Then you have a bunch of names in the first four, first four verses. And then in 15, what do you get? What do you have? What do you have in verse four, 15? You got two names. Ship, uh, Shipra and Puba. They get names. They get, they, their, their, their names get recorded in chapter 1. But who doesn't get a name in chapter 1? Who doesn't get a name in chapter 1? Pharaoh doesn't get a name. The king of Egypt doesn't get a name. And remember in Genesis 11, what did the people want when they built the tower? What did they want? They wanted a name for themselves, right? They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. We're going to get a name for ourselves. We're going to capture for ourselves personal honor and glory and fame in our own strength. Through our own resources, we're going to stop God's plan. Do they get a name? They don't get a name. There's the Holy Spirit way of telling them, you're still not going to get a name. No. Not even here. Yeah. And Pharaoh, you're not going to get a name either. Who gets a name in Genesis 11? Who gets a name after Genesis 11? In Genesis 12? Abraham gets a name. Mm-hmm. Abraham gets a name. God says, I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. And then here... In verse 15, chapter 1, two Hebrew midwives get names. They get names. The mightiest king of, of the mightiest, the most powerful man in the, of the world's first superpower, the 18th dynasty of Egypt, he doesn't get a name. The, the irony of it, these two lowly Hebrew midwives. It's like God is saying, Pharaoh, no, you're not going to get a name. I'm going to give a name to these lowly Hebrew midwives. Uh, the rest of, from verses 15 to, and onward to the end of the chapter, it explains why they get a name. It explains why they get a name. So, um, Pharaoh goes to the midwives, and he has this plan. He wants to hatch a plan in verse 16. And he says, When you're helping the Hebrew woman to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Right? Less Hebrew males, less future soldiers. You know, he either wants, the reason why he does this um, secretly or like this, it's either maybe he doesn't want this genocide to be so public at first, or maybe in his sick heart, he, it's, this is a, a more humane way of killing babies. We don't know why. Why the two names? Why just two people? I mean, there's a lot more midwives, right? They can't c- totally curb the population uh, population you know, babies being born every day. Uh, most likely, Shipra and Pu are probably the, the overseers of the midwives. Mm-hmm. They're in charge. And so he's going to the people in charge to command them. And wh- why did the midwives get a name? Wh- why did they get a name? Verse 17. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them, but let the boys live. Remember, pharaohs were viewed as gods back then. Well, here's one historic inscription, Reckmeyer. He was a prime minister under Thutmose III, and this is how this inscription reads, describing Pharaoh. What is the king of Upper and Lower Egypt? He is a god, by whose dealings one's lit, one lives, the father and mother of all men, alone by himself, without an equal. That's how they viewed Pharaoh. And so the midwives, do they fear Pharaoh? No, they fear God. They feared God and they obeyed him. Verse 18, uh, Pharaoh realizes that, you know what? I still see a lot of baby boys. Um, they're not, they haven't listened to me. Um, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? Verse 19, Then the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the, before the midwife can come to them. Are the midwives lying in verse 19? Yes. Why do you think that? Seems to fit the story. How so? Well, I mean, you know, they told, they told, the Pharaoh told them to kill the boys and they didn't do it. And, um, but why, 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 can't, why can't their explanation in verse 19 be true? Could be true. Could be true. Yeah. Um. In order for a group of people to be fruitful and multiply to the extent that they do, what do the birthing mothers have to be? They have to be vigorous. They have to be vigorous. They have to be strong. They have to be strong. They have to be healthy, right? Um, and verse 20 would make it appear that what they were saying was true in verse 19, because... Uh, verse 20 is like a concluding kind of comment on this situation between the midwives and Pharaoh. It says, so, so, so God was good to the midwives. Summarize it. God, um, because of their faithfulness, obedience, he brought it about where they didn't have to uh, uh, lie or blatantly disobey Pharaoh. Now, they could have helped the situation by telling everybody, hey, hey, moms, when that baby comes out, you better push. Fast, hard. It needs to come out before we get there. Right? They could have said that. And God could have made it so. Right? Um, you know, is it possible for a woman to push out with no help? Yeah, if God helps, helps you and, and, and they're strong, it can happen. It can happen. I, I think you hear, sometimes you hear stories and... Um, about a couple months ago, there was a police officer, I think, or no, somebody, it was a police officer in a taxi cab or something, and, and, and she just pushed it out. And, and, and she was a vigorous lady. She was a vigorous lady. So, so God was good to the midwives. Um, the people multiplied, and they became very mighty. And... And... Uh, one second. Um, what happened? Pharaoh loses. Pharaoh loses. Pharaoh can't even beat these two Hebrew midwives. Can't even beat them. That's how pitiful he is against God. Right? Um, go ahead. Yeah, um, I, yeah I was going to say 
that that shows the theme of Pharaoh losing from chapter one yeah. and all the way through is going to keep yeah, on yeah yeah good 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 and, and uh, I wanted to ask you what what suggests the idea of them lying because I when I when I when I read that when I was a kid and when I heard people talk about it too they kind of just said that they were lying but no without any evidence really but what suggests that they were lying well when when, when you read it fast. I, th- I thought they were lying too. It just kind of, if you read it fast, you don't read yeah. it carefully. Now that I'm reading it now. Because I think we naturally read it with kind of a naturalistic assumptions. Mm-hmm. You know, like how could this possibly happen? You know, where um, before midwives can come to them, they're so vigorous they give birth, right? That sounds miraculous. That sounds, you know, so I think sometimes a lot of us, including myself, we read it with this naturalism mm-hmm. that God is. Not doing all of this. God is not in control. So I think it just comes from, you know, it's very common to think that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure commentators probably, some commentators um, might think they are lying. Um, well, verse 17, too, like when I first read it, like a, a lot of that house confused yeah. by it, too, because yeah. it says, um, The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them, right. but let the boys live. So it sounded like they, they were actively disobeying, actively, like, right. doing the opposite. Right. So that's why, I, when I first read it, I was yeah. like, it kind of seems like, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. And that's, that's one uh, another reason why you kind of think they're lying. Because they actively don't do what Pharaoh says. So... But the, the text yeah. is also unclear. At which point do they kill them? Right. It's like, do you get there, you see it, it's a right. point, and then you... Right. Yeah, you right. Know, let me have it and yeah. let me do away. So right. it's not it's still unclear there too. So that's yeah. why I was like, I was a little bit confused. Yeah, I think without verse twenty, the beginning of verse twenty, it's hard to say. Yeah. But verse twenty is a conclu- in the grammar. It's a concluding statement, and God was good to the midwives. Um, it's concluding what's come before this, and He's good to them by um, bringing about um, their ability to not do what Pharaoh says and. He gives them a, a, a legitimate out, a legitimate out for, for the, the midwives to say to Pharaoh, this is what happened. When we try to get there, the baby's already there. And I, and I think Pharaoh, he, has, he, he can investigate, right? He can, I'm sure he, he checked this out and it, it came out good. He said, yeah. yeah, they're right. Yeah. It's, it's true what they're saying. So Pharaoh's no dummy. He's, he's not that gullible. Yeah. It sounds kind of fishy. So I'm sure he had some type of investigation. And, and because God was good to them, because God, because God was good to them, um, Pharaoh loses. Pharaoh loses. And also, I feel that Moses was writing here. He, he repeated twice that the midwives feared God. Right. They didn't fear Pharaoh. Yeah, it, it was, yeah that's a good point. It, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't make sense to say they feared God, but then out of fear of Pharaoh, they lie to him. Right? It's kind of contradictory. Yeah. You know, they fear God. But then when Pharaoh asked them, they... Because why, why, uh, why did Abraham lie when he was in Egypt? He was afraid of dying, mm-hmm. right? So when you fear somebody, you, it, 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 it tends to uh, compel you to lie. So it wouldn't make sense that right after it, it says before and after when it says they feared him, for them to lie in the middle of that. So that's another good reason. So as John Henry noticed, um, what do you see? That, what, what, what do we already know? Pharaoh's going to lose. Pharaoh's going to lose and God is going to win. You can't beat God. You can't beat God. And so in verse 22, 
Pharaoh commands all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Pharaoh up, ups the ante. He takes it to the, to the next level. And this decree is pretty ironic. How so? Well, I'm confused. It says commanded all his people? Yep. Even the non-Israelites? Yes. <laughs> what? That's crazy. Yeah. That's insane. So he says, hey, Egyptian, if you see a baby boy, you hear a baby boy crying, you go in there, take that, book, take that baby, throw it into the Nile. Nile was considered like a god. Um, it, it was considered like a, a deity. And so it was kind of a way of like, okay, offer sacrifice to the Nile. And when people would see babies floating down the river, there would be this justification or we're giving this baby to the god of the Nile. Um, so yeah, he gets the entire country involved. But what's ironic about this decree? What Pharaoh commands will eventually be the instrument of his own destruction because who comes down the, the, the Nile? <laughs> Moses. Taken by his own daughter, Moses, who will eventually destroy Egypt. Can't beat God. <laughs> even, even his own decree is going to be used against him. Yeah. <laughs> Foolish thing, right? Can't beat God. Trust in Christ today. Trust in him. You can, we can either stand with him or we can stand against him and lose very badly. And the beginning of Exodus tells us.